Hey everyone, welcome back to a belated episode of Let's Go Steal a Podcast. I'm Christina, and strangely enough, I am your only host today. Ironically enough, we had some issues with scheduling to record this episode that were health-related, which actually fits in really well with the theme of this episode. So today I'm going to be talking about episode three of season two, The Order 23 Job. This episode aired July 29th, 2009. It was directed by Rod Hardy. It was written by Chris Downey. Then we have our executive producers, John Rogers and Dean Devlin, as usual. So in this episode, to recover money stolen by a crooked hedge fund manager, the team convinces him that he's the victim of a contagion outbreak. This episode opens in a courtroom. And the very first shot that we get is, uh, besides like the establishing shot outside that we're in this small town in Massachusetts, the first interior shot is this focus of this Louis Vuitton suitcase, which the first time I watched it, I just thought, oh, this is establishing that whoever this person is on trial is very wealthy because it's got a Louis Vuitton bag. And then we meet Eddie Morangian, who is, has been found guilty of swindling people out of their life savings, but because he has helped the government with some unnamed cases, he is only getting 18 months of jail time in a really posh prison in Florida. So when the judge hands out this ruling, the entire courtroom, which is full of his victims, they're understandably upset about this and there's a lot of commotion. And in fact, one is so upset that during all of this commotion, when the federal marshals are getting him ready to take him out into custody to transport him to Florida, one man pulls out a gun and is obviously about to kind of take the law into his own hands. But before he can do anything foolhardy, a hand stops him, and we see that Nate is there, and he tells him, you know, follow me, you don't want to do that, don't be hasty. But instead of following Nate, the guy gets up. And goes over and punches Eddie Morangian right in the face. Uh, which is, you know, less than he deserves, honestly. Because uh, so far, he has $400,000 that they haven't been able to recover. Uh, out that, are, that belongs to all these innocent people that he's smuggled. So the next scene that we get is in the hallway of the courtroom, or the, the, the courthouse. And we see the man who punched Eddie out you know, talking to Nate and Hardison, and we, we find out that this, uh, the, one of the cons, and I'm assuming it's one of the cons, judging from the um, diverse set of people who are in the courtroom who were affected by him, uh, but one, one portion of the con that this guy was running on people was a, a con or a crime called an affinity crime. So this is a criminal activity where perpetrators use ethnic community ties to prey on their own community. So Morangian is uh, Armenian and he uses his um, Armenian identity to get close to other Armenians, uh, which is which who uh, really value strong family ties and it's a really tightly knit community. And they're far more likely to trust someone who's like them and invest money with them than they would be to just any outsider. So he really took advantage of that when he was, you know, getting people's money out of them. But uh, as we see in the courtroom, there are a lot of, of other people. There are white people, there are black people, there are people of different ethnicities. So definitely his crimes were not, were not 
simply on the um, Armenian Armenian American community. That just makes it almost even worse, I think. The the first time that I watched this episode, I was really concerned that uh, for for several reasons. Uh, that I thought were plot holes, and the very first one is really glaring in this very first scene, because I don't know if you've been, we've talked about this before in the past, but um, if you've been to jury duty recently, but when you go into a courthouse, you go through a metal detector and your stuff, it's just like TSA, almost your bag gets searched, and you know, to make sure you're not bringing anything dangerous into the courthouse. And so the first thing I thought was, how did this guy get into this courtroom with a gun, and it's not like a casual gun, it's like a pretty hefty little gun. And in the, in the uh, audio commentary, the, the creators and the writers talked about this town that they've set this episode in, Bellbridge, Massachusetts, shows up in this episode, and then it'll also be in the finale episode of this season, so it comes back up. And this town in general, they've set it up, uh, the way that they set it up, it's not doing so well. They're, and, and because of a lot of issues that we get into in the last episodes of this season, not to be spoilery, they can't afford to update security, or they can't afford up-to-date security in their courthouse. So that's how the gun slips its way into this courtroom, and also later on, it's how a big key part of the episode can take place without it being too plot holy. So, as Morangian is waiting to be taken to prison by the federal marshals, the uh, gang ha is meeting up in the empty courtroom to kind of come up with a plan to how they're going to find the money that he's hidden away. Because the whole investigation was not able to figure out where he hid this money. So, they've got to come up with a, an incentive to, to get him to confess to where he's got this money. And he's already going to prison. so. And he's going to get out in 18 months, so really, they've got to figure out some way to, you know, to convince him. So, Nate poses, what is worse than prison? And Sophie says, well, death. Death is worse than prison. And Nate notices that Morangian has left behind this little antibacterial hand gel bottle. And, you know... Then we also see him use some emergency, pour some powder into his water bottle. And so obviously this guy is kind of a germaphobe. He doesn't, he's, he's kind of afraid of getting sick. So Nate decides, well, we're going to prey on that fear. And then we go to one of my favorite tropes of this show, which, which is Parker in Air Ducts. I love her just crawling into tiny spaces and whether or not she's complaining about it. It's just awesome. And it's been a while since she's done that. Then she does the, the whole uh, poison down the wire, like the drop of liquid poison uh, or drug of some sort, down the wire, through the vent, and into uh, Morangian's water bottle. In the audio commentary, they say that this is a uh, an homage to some James Bond film, but obviously it's not. I mean, it is because they wrote it. But... Seriously, my, my frame of reference for this is the movie Gross Point Blank, which is way better than any James Bond movie, and you can fight me on it. I'll take you on. Uh, and then, uh, so, she does this while he is showing off how he swindled people to the marshals. <sighs> yeah. 
so, uh, you know, during this little conversation, we there's like a little bit about how big the rats in Florida are because Parker makes some noises in the air ducts and, and the marshals start to kind of mock Eddie about, you know, how big the, the, the rats and rodents in Florida will be. And we find out that the marshals have only just started working together, which kind of comes into play later. Then once Morangian takes another sip of his water bottle that has uh, what we find out later is Rehypnol in it, he passes out very promptly. And Nate shows up conveniently as a doctor who's psyched to get out of jury duty to check on this guy. And when he asks if he's had any head trauma lately, the federal marshals say, well, he was just punched out in, in the courtroom. So he says, oh, this guy is probably suffering from a concussion. We need to get him to the hospital for, a, for an MRI. So he, it takes a little bit of convincing because they're supposed to be on a plane to go to Florida in an hour, but Nate pushes it and so they decide, okay, detour, we'll take him to the hospital first. So now we gotta go steal a hospital. And I love that they end up at the hospital before the federal marshals, but whatever. And, and there's this great scene when they're walking in and Parker has this giant duffel bag with all their gear and, and Nate's just, you know, casually walking in and Parker's freaking out about Nate having to play a doctor. She says, what if they ask you to uh, deliver a baby? Say, like, I'll say I'm not an OBGYN, like I'm not a baby doctor. And like, what if there's an accident, somebody comes in and there's somebody's open chested, they're saying, oh, you know, do this. And he's like, well, I put my hand in his chest and hope for the best. And she says, I, I don't want you to be my doctor. So he pushes her down the hall um, in kind of like a big brothery way. And he's like, you know, go, you know, go figure out the thing. Go get the stuff that we need for our, for our con. And they take over an unused floor of the building. I don't know how common unused floors of hospital buildings are, but I, I guess I'll believe it for this, in this case. Which for a town that's struggling, maybe people are leaving or they can't afford to pay for enough staff. So they, they would have like an empty wing or floor that they would be using for storage instead of actually uh, having staff on there and having patients. So yeah, that makes sense. And Hardison is setting up this whole like DJ system basically and he shows Nate how he can use it to mimic the sound effects that they need for this job. So people, uh, he's got speakers placed up and down the hall so you kind of get a Doppler effect of uh, footsteps coming down, you can have radios going off, you can have sirens of people talking and, and important things that, that'll come in into effect later in the, in the job. And this is actually, this is a really, really fast job. They have to get it done in two hours, which blows my mind because, you know, a lot of times for the show anyway, they, they do work on a condensed timeline but they've got a day or two or maybe three days or if it's a really long con they've been setting it up for a while this one they they figured out what they were going to do in the courtroom and then i think by the end it is evening by the end of this but it's really just it's a two hour time frame which is bananas uh, when they're getting all their costumes from parker and getting ready to set up hardison and elliot have this great bickering scene, which all bickering scenes between them are wonderful, but my favorite line from this one is, 
when Hardison says, you know, a bully's just a cowboy with low self-esteem. <laughs> and that's just funny. Anytime Elliot's called a cowboy, it's hilarious. So Hardison and Elliot are going to be playing cops for most of this episode, for, yeah, for most of their part in this con in this episode. Parker is a nurse, and so she gets to wear very comfortable scrubs. And Sophie is everything else, basically. Uh, Nate will play, you know, his doctor character, but he, and he, you know, he gets to play God as well, which is his favorite thing. And Sophie gets to play all of the other necessary characters. But first she gets to play a patient. So Parker uh, rolls Marangian back toward the MRI room after she sprays his wheelchair with something that gives him a rash on his way to meet up with Dr. Nate. And then we get Hardison and Elliot bickering over code words, and Hardison wants to have their code word like, okay, if it's, if it's something wrong is happening, then I'm gonna, I'll reference one of the good Star Trek movies, and something, nothing's wrong, then I'll reference the bad Star Trek movies. And it's just very confusing, and Elliot does not care because he doesn't own a TV and he doesn't care about Star Trek. And, which of course is, offensive to Partisan and myself and anybody else with any sort of nerd cred. But as they're bickering about this, Elliot notices a, a young boy who's being admitted for a broken arm. And something about the way this kid's standing or the way his dad is acting kind of sets off some alarm bells, but he doesn't have time to go into that. We just see him kind of notice it and then have to move on. So we go back to Nate uh, at, standing at the entrance of the MRI room or MRI suite, that's what they call them, and Parker has brought Eddie over, and he rolls up his sleeves to take, to listen to his heartbeat or something with this, you know, stethoscope, which I don't know if that's a thing that doctors do. Sure. Uh, and he notices the, the rash on Eddie's arms that Eddie hadn't noticed before, because they've just appeared. And he... He immediately is concerned and instructs Parker to take him up to the eighth floor, at which she also shows some concern. She's like, oh, are you sure the eighth floor? And, you know, he's kind of sharper there and makes her take him up there, which is adding to Eddie's kind of sense of, oh my gosh, what's happening? Uh, I don't know what's going on. So Hardison and Elliot are now introducing themselves to the federal marshals as officers Crichton and Michaels, which is possibly a nod to Michael Crichton and his book The Andromeda Strain, because this is, episode is going to be very much in keeping with kind of the storyline of that book. So Parker rolls Eddie into his, his hospital room, and she, you know, has to handcuff him to the bed, and she leaves, and as soon as she leaves, we meet Sophie as Bridget, uh, who has this great Boston towny accent and these this like kind of poofy pompadour hairstyle and she's exhibiting a lot of the symptoms that Eddie is and she's scratching at a rash on her arm kind of compulsively as she just talks his ear off and <laughs> snaps gum. Uh, and then we get some some nice exposition which is always really fun, especially when you're explaining it to Parker, which we are in this case, because Parker doesn't understand how all of this is going to work. She, she knows what they're going to do, but she doesn't really get how it's going to work. So, uh, because the rehypnol she's given him before has worn off, so he's not really 
suggestive in that way. They can't really like control him and, through drugs. And uh, but after Nate has Parker read off some hospital messages over the PA system, which I don't understand. I guess they yeah they have the speaker set up because it was confusing me how the rest of the hospital didn't hear these messages, but it's because I went through the speakers. Anyways, um, so then after she's read those off, he goes into telling her about neuro-linguistic programming, which is something that they, that will come back in Leverage, it's something they use quite often, and Sophie's really good at it. But uh, Nate goes into all this explanation of like the hippocampus and the amygdala and all this stuff about how they're by just suggesting that Eddie has these symptoms that they're going to be suggesting to him, that uh, it's going to be more effective and it will trick him into believing that he is sick rather than telling him, oh, hey, you're sick, because uh, you can kind of get a backdoor into somebody's feelings if you subtly manipulate them. So, as... Hardison and Elliot as Crichton and Michaels are shooting the shooting the breeze with our federal marshals, a real patient needs to go in to use the MRI. And the marshals then they, they discover that Eddie is not actually in there. There's a dummy in the MRI machine. And the marshals, especially the um, Bob, who is kind of the senior marshal, he, they want to report it. They need they need to, you know do a manhunt because now we're, you know, in an episode of The Fugitive. But Elliot convinces Bob to wait and search the hospital first because if they have really lost this guy, that's going to be the end of all four of their careers. And because of this, the con has suddenly been shortened. So they were going to take a little longer, but now they are in a much shorter time frame and they've got to, they've got to move things along. So Sophie's symptoms increase really fast and she starts uh, not feeling really well. She's, she gets a, I think she gets, yeah, she gets a nosebleed, and and they rush into the hospital room and try to work on her, and she dies really quickly after Doctor Nate gives her CPR. And it's really cool and creepy how they do this because they they pulled the curtain between their beds, and you can hear them like working on her. And Morangian can see the shadows of them working and her kind of convulsing. And he can also see at the head of the bed the curtain has been pulled back a little tiny bit, so he can see just her face, uh, and and it's terrifying. You can see that he's just freaking out. And as soon as she's, they've called her death. They wheel her out. <clears throat> And nobody will answer his questions. So Eddie's just yelling, like, what happened? Like, what's going on? Uh, am I sick? Like, and they, they, they don't answer him. So he's starting to get amped up. He's starting to freak out. Then we've got the marshals are in the security suite. They're checking all of the cameras and running the back, trying to see what happens to Eddie. And Hardison picks their pockets for their car keys. And I'm not sure why he picks their pockets. Uh, it ends up being really helpful, but I couldn't think of a reason, like, unless they were going to use getting their car keys to sort of slow them down, but then he goes and searches their cars, so I don't know how that would help them. But yeah, and Hardison encourages them to keep checking the hospital so they don't get spread too thin, and, and he goes to, to grab Elliot. 
So Elliot, who had been playing the part of an orderly, has changed back into his uh, cop uniform. Uh, but as he's going to meet up with Hardison, he's distracted again by this the kid that he saw earlier with a broken arm. And he's sitting kind of on his uh, kind of on his own. And he walks up. Who is it? Oh yeah, he he walks up to the dad and says, "Hey, can I can I talk to you in the stairwell?" Meanwhile, he's taken out his his calm because he doesn't want Elliot in, or Hardison in his ear right now, and he takes uh, he takes the guy into the stairwell and asks him, "You know, where did this?" Where'd your kid? How did your kid break his arm? And you know the guy just says, "Oh, he, you know, kids are clumsy. He broke it on his skateboard." And he's not taking that for an answer. Like that's not that's not what happened. And then the guy proceeds to give him his, as they, as John Rogers and Chris Downey call it, his evil speech of evil. Uh, you know, the the speech where our bad guys have convinced themselves they're not that bad, like there are worse people out there and they're just doing this goodbye. So he's convinced he's not a bad dad, even though he broke his kid's arm, because most dads don't even see their kids. Most dads don't pay child support. So what if I, you know, show my kid a firm hand? And Elliot is not okay with this. Um, and, you know, threatens him, holds him over the edge of the stairwell and kind of puts the fear of God in him. But it really, it's, Kind of hammering home this lesson that the team learned in, in the last episode, which is their presence in any of these people's lives are temporary. Are these temporary? Are temporary. So in a lot of in a lot of cases, they they help someone, and then that person's going to be able to go on and and be fine on their own. But in some cases, like in, in the tap out job. If they had left that job early, that would have put their clients, at, you know, in danger. And in, in this one, he he realizes just just threatening this dad is not going to have the long-term effect that he wants it to have. Because sure, the dad might not hurt the kid for you know a couple, like a week or a month, depending on how long it takes him to for his his arm to heal. But he, there's no way that he can know in the future that this kid's going to be safe. And he doesn't really have a, like an avenue or a way of making sure this kid is safe, especially because he's in the midst of another job. So he kind of has to contend with that. He steals the dad's ID and, you know, threatens him and says, I've got my eye on you. But, but how can he be sure that this is actually going to be effective? So meanwhile, Morangian is really freaking out. And Parker notices on their video feed that he has actually gotten a nosebleed. And she says, did you just give a guy a nosebleed with the power of your mind? And Nate is super satisfied with this, like he's very excited. And Parker's honestly freaked out about how sadistic Nate has gotten since he's sobered up. And, and she says so to Sophie. And Sophie, of course, is just turned on by this. She's like, oh, I think he's more attractive, which is ridiculous. And, and we, you know, at this point, like, kind of everybody is split up a little bit. And Hardison is checking out the Marshall's cars. Uh, that's why he stole the, the keys earlier. And it, 
when he's doing this, I'm like, why are there two cars in this parking lot? Weren't they driving together? They're, I mean, they're escorting a prisoner to the airport. It's going to be like, why would they be in two cars? It doesn't seem like the height of security to me. Uh, and then, so while, while all of this is going on, they notice that a security guard from the hospital is making the rounds and has come up onto their floor that they're using. And he hears Eddie screaming. <laughs> and he's honestly freaked out. He's like this kind of skinny, uh, dweeby kind of guy. And, you know, it, it's just something right out of a horror movie with this vacant, you know, hospital floor with all the stuff still sitting around. And then you've got someone screaming in another room and he's freaking out. And so Sophie jumps into one of the other roles in this episode which she's like in a hazmat suit and she points the guy to like a chemical shower so he's got to go like wash off his contagion in there they've got a message saying you know, you've been in contact with the contagion and it's washed off by water so keep cleaning yourself and he's you know freaking out and he's in his tidy whities and he's in this cold water and he's shivering and so sad <laughs> so while Hardison is checking all of the uh, the marshal's cars, he realizes that Charlie, our second marshal, is not actually a marshal. He's actually an assassin with the Armenian mob. So we kind of infer that the help that Eddie gave to the government was ratting out the mob, the Armenian mob, and now they've got um, a hit out on him. Um, unless, as Hardison says, it's standard issue for federal marshals to have duct tape and twine and lie in, in the trunk of their car, which I really don't think it is. I've seen every episode of Justified, and they they did a lot of shady things, but they didn't have those things in their car. So, uh, but as Hardison is trying to explain all of this to Elliot, who is his backup, he cannot get through to him because he doesn't have his column in. But Elliot has kind of gone back on the job and he meets up with Charlie down in the morgue to search for Eddie. And uh, just as Charlie is about to attack him with uh, a silencer on his gun, Hardison comes over the PA system of the hospital and asks, makes a Star Trek reference. He says, oh, Dr. Ralph O'Conn. <laughs> Which is great. I love nerdy references. And it's just in time to allow Elliot to kind of get the drop on Charlie. And they have this epic fight in the morgue. And Elliot's especially angry and happy to take it out on someone. Uh, and they have this big old fight. I, honestly, though, I don't think they needed to get a corpse involved. Like, at some point, like, he throws... They, they, like, get thrown onto this body that's on a gurney. And I feel like that's a little disrespectful. Uh, the dead person doesn't know what's happening, but... Cool. And then he ends up shoving Charlie into one of the more, uh, the drawers in the morgue, on top of another dead person. Which, dang, like, he's gonna be messed up after that. Speaking of messed up, Morangian is really freaking out, and Nate comes in to the room and as his doctor's self, and he's obviously not well, and he passes out as he's trying to explain to Eddie that there's a virus that the Soviets are trying to weaponize, and all this stuff, and Parker has to cuff Nate to the bed uh, to keep him from, from leaving again because it's obvious that he has contracted whatever this illness is that they're pretending Morangian has. And Morangian has kind of like reached the end of his rope and he's 
convinces Parker to let him go for $400,000. So he says, you know, I, I just have to, I know where it is, I just have to get it, and then you can have this cash, just let me out. Which really just shows, like, the height of the selfishness of this this character, of this man, that he knows that this is highly contagious, and and he just wants to go out to the world. Like, that would, he'd be putting so many other people at risk, and... Yeah, and he only thinks of himself. It's obvious that everybody else at the incubation period of his illness is very fast and he's going to die. And so, I don't know what he's thinking. I'll just take down other people with me instead of containing it here. But anyways, so they escape uh, Eddie and Parker just as Bob, our real marshal, comes up the stairs to investigate. And meanwhile, uh, Nate has immediately undone his cuffs and, and has fled the scene. And Bob, the, the marshal, busts open the, the hospital room where they were just a moment before and, and doesn't think that anybody's there. But then he notices Eddie's tie on the ground. So he finally has to call in this escaped prisoner to the real cops. So the real cops start showing up and Hardison wants them to make a run for it. But Elliot has to talk to this kid again because he can't just leave this, this this boy just on his own. We find out that this kid's name is Randy, and that one of the big reasons that he hasn't come forward to tell anybody about it is that his dad is friends with a lot of cops. So he knows that nothing would come of it if he, you know, if he did come forward and accuse his dad of abusing him, which obviously really upsets Elliot again. And so much so that when Hardison comes to kind of like touch him on the shoulder and say, we gotta get out of here, he like jumps and almost like lunges at Hardison, kind of by surprise. Because I don't think that Elliot is, I mean, I definitely know that Elliot is not used to feeling helpless. And this is definitely a situation where he feels helpless. He can't help this kid right now. So, back to Parker and Eddie Morangian. She is trying to bust him out, so she's taken him down into the basement and they're kind of going through these almost tunnels with, you know, pipes and smoke everywhere. And she points him the way out and he says, thank you. Then he tases her and he leaves her behind, which is just a classic Eddie Morangian. Just, just classic. So, <laughs> I love this next scene because he, gets outside of the hospital, which is next to a train yard, it's dark, there's a homeless person pushing a buggy, like a grocery cart, down this alleyway, and he uh, he finds a car with the keys and the visor, which is like one of my least favorite tropes in TV and movies is when you conveniently get into a car that's unlocked and somebody has left the keys in the visor. I have never met anybody in my life who has left their car keys in the visor of their car. This is like a leftover thing from a past era that nobody does anymore. But in the commentary, they do point out that they did it on purpose. This is a planted car that Hardison left there. It is uh, Charlie, the Armenian uh, assassin. That's his car that they left there specifically for Eddie to find. So, at least that is explained for me. So, 
he takes his stolen car and he heads straight to the courthouse where he breaks in very easily and you know runs down a hallway climbs into a utility closet storage closet near where he was waiting after his trial and retrieves the louis vuitton case that we saw earlier in the episode so it's like hidden up in the ceiling just a couple feet from where parker was in the air duct earlier and when he closes the door parker is right there with a smile on her face ready to punch him in his face and and we see uh one of the classic leverage flashbacks to when he tased her and she immediately gets back up after he's gone and uh, pulls up her shirt and loosens this back brace that she had on, which was perfect. I don't know how she knew he was going to tase her, but I don't know. It was ideal. So uh, when, you know, he kind of recovers from being punched in the face by Parker, he sees the rest of the crew all standing there their various outfits um, and he realizes that you know he's been had but he is giddy about this because he thinks they're all going down because he, he knows all of their faces and he can tell the cops exactly who they are and what they've done and so he proceeds to run outside to do just that and it doesn't go quite to plan because he's apprehended by the police who don't believe any of his crazy ravings which is great and and then Nate starts spouting some legalese about I don't know I don't remember what the terms are <laughs> I apologize for all my lawyers who are usually you know doing this podcast with me or people with law backgrounds uh, you know something about being guilty of the act itself and you know being guilty in your mind or whatever basically He's, he's going to jail for a long time. So, uh, somehow, Hardis and Elliot get back to the hospital and back into their uh, police uniforms. And we see them talking with Bob the Marshal, who's in the morgue, and they're still searching for uh, Morangian. And Hardison's cop gets a call that says, oh, they found him. He was complaining about hemorrhoids or something like that. Something crazy. And then they find Charlie in the drawer <laughs> on top of a corpse, and Elliot gets to punch him one more time. So Elliot uh, gives the collar to Bob uh, in exchange for, you know, in, as like a thanks for, um, you know, not going to the police at a time because he says, oh, I convinced you not to, to like, call it in and, you know, you trusted me so I want to give you this and he's like, yeah damn straight I, I deserve that and then he kind of offers him a favor if there's anything I can do for you and it occurs to Elliot that oh there's someone else who can help so he asks Bob to go help Randy which I love and he does and I love the actor who plays Bob when he uh, shows up at Randy's house he's really kind and, and just sweet and he says Randy you know I'm, I'm Bob whatever from you know the u.s federal marshals uh early u.s marshals and you know i want to talk to you outside and he says it's gonna be okay and he's just really sweet and then the dad comes to the door and he's like who's this and he just like looks at him and he smiles at randy and brings randy outside and then he goes from like kind sweet face to like cop 
face really, really well, really fast. And then we have um, a shot of Elliot watching Randy go and get into Bob's car from his own car. And, and that's the end of the episode. It kind of fades to black and you can fill in the blank there. Does Elliot go in and take this guy out? <laughs> or do we just kind of get a little more insight into Elliot's uh, character? Some people have, you know, theorized that this kind of indicates that Elliot was abused in the past. I really don't think that, personally I don't think that's the case, um, but I think Elliot more and more especially is seeing himself as someone who rights wrongs and who helps the little guy, which is, you know, what the whole team is about and it kind of shows his evolution as a character. I don't know if he would have done something like this at the beginning of season one when he literally says every man for them, you know, for themselves. So it's, it's a nice growth of this character to see Elliot notice things while he's in the middle of another job and, and try to do everything he can to, to help this person who's not involved in the case that they're currently working It's beautiful. So I know this season, the kind of the end cap of our episodes are talking about real life heists, but I was doing some reading, shocker, this past week and I found something really interesting in, in one of my books that I was reading. It is from a book called Bygone Badass Broads, 52 Forgotten Women Who Changed the World by Mackenzie Lee. You should check it out if you haven't heard of it already. And I was reading the chapter on a woman called Frederica Marm Mandelbaum, who lived in the United States from um, in the 18... So 1818 to 1894, and she was New York's queen of thieves. She moved to the United States from Germany uh, and decided that, you know, uh, owning a dry goods store with her husband was not really boring and it didn't really pay a lot, but crime did pay. So she uh, created this huge network of thieves and uh, rascals and rogues and she basically fenced the things that they stole and she kind of created this huge empire uh, she, 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 they called her marm and she called all of her little all of her thieves her little chicks she founded at one point uh, mandelbaum's school for gifted youngsters which sounds a lot like something professor x uh, you know, Professor Xavier did X-Men, but this was an institute known for polishing up street moppets and turning them into master criminals. <laughs> so this book is so funny. While no transcripts were ever transferred to an accredited university, the young ne'er-do-wells she plucked off the street and enrolled began by mastering pickpocketing and petty thefts. If you passed those classes, you could declare your major and graduate in scamming, safe-cracking, or blackmail with a minor in burglary. And it's just great. So the next part of this, uh, it says Marm's Grand Street School, as it was known, became the most successful training center for aspiring crooks in the city. Among the fledgling felons that Marm nurtured, she was partial to helping women so they wouldn't waste life being a housekeeper. Criminal might not be a 
booth one typically finds at a career day, but it beat the backbreaking work and hellish mills many girls were confined to because of their gender and socioeconomic station. So I, I love that. Uh, it, it seems very in keeping with the leverage, <laughs> the leverage motto, uh, except for the fact that you know she's kind of doing all this not for the greater good, but you know just for herself. I do love that kind of in the end of her life, she is being, uh, you know, hunted down by the Pinkerton detectives, but she, she, um, when they come to her with an actual warrant, she punches one of them in the face, and then she jumps bail uh, with more than a million dollars in stolen diamonds and settles in Ontario, Canada, where she lived out the rest of her life. Uh, turning up her middle finger at the long arm of the American law from a distance and died in So she's, I, I kind of love that she, she died on top. Like she just, kinda, I love that she didn't, I don't know, die horribly. But what I found really interesting, aside from all of this, was a little footnote at the end of this chapter uh, about Marm's, one of Marm's protégés from the Grand Street School. Her name, uh, she's known as the Princess of Thieves, and her name was Sophie. So her name was Sophie Lyons, and uh, I was like, oh, Sophie, like our Sophie. And it says she could have her own entry in this book. Under Marm's tutelage, she became one of the most successful con men in New York City at the time. Her signature move was luring men to a hotel room, getting them naked, then stealing their clothes and extorting them for cash. When caught, Sophie talked her way out of arrest by claiming that the real Sophie Lyons would be too smart to have been caught. And it worked. She eventually retired from criminal life and became involved in the rehabilitation of juvenile delinquents. Uh, and then she completely disavows any of Marm's tutelage in her biography, her autobiography. And so I, I love that. I have no idea if the creators of Leverage knew anything about uh, Marm Mandelbaum or Sophie Lyons, but I just thought it was too crazy of a coincidence not to bring up. So that's it for this episode of Let's Go Steal a Podcast. You won't see us again, but you will hear us again next week when uh, I talk with Lisa Lynn about the fairy godparents job. Thanks for listening. Bye.